Hi, I'm Adam Phillips, and I love comics. Sure, I love superhero comics, but I also love comics that are funny, or romantic, or educational, or even kind of filthy. Some have been around for decades, but I have a special place in my heart for the ones that came and went in the blink of an eye. We call them one-shots, and some of them you may have heard of, while others might make you ask, why? This is One-Shot Wonders. Hi, everybody. Welcome to a very special episode of One Shot Wonders with Adam Phillips. I'm beyond thrilled to have as my guest today uh, the great and mighty Maggie Thompson. <laughs> um, we've known each other for a long time, Maggie and I, and she is really one of the founders of Comics Fandom, long, long time editor of or co-editor of the uh, com- uh, the Buyer's Guide. Wait, wait. Comics Buyer's, Comics Buyer's Guide. Guide for 30 years. I, Yes, which is amazing. But I always mix up the names because I was a subscriber back in the 70s before the name changed. Then it was the Buyer's uh, Guide. The buyer's Guide. Yes. Yeah, the Buyer's Guide, not the It comics. went from TBG to CBG. Guide. There you go. Yes. There you go. And uh, yeah, it's always a delight to talk to you and see you. Unfortunately, we're not seeing much of anybody these days, but <laughs> we can still get together online and over the interwebs. And have fun conversations like this one today, where we're going to talk about a comic that Maggie chose based on her own history and beginnings as a comics fan. And that is Pogo Parade Number 1, which is published July 14th, 1953. And Maggie, if you want to start, everyone who knows you knows your love of Walt Kelly and Pogo. But if you could tell us a little about how that came about, that would be awesome. Well, what had happened was that I had a dime allowance every week and I would take that dime to the newsstand on the corner and go through every comic book on there this is from my mother's description go through every comic Mm. book there pick one bring it home and then she would have to read it to me for the next seven days until I took my next dime to buy the next comic book now she read me other things too I don't want you to think that that was my total entertainment nevertheless What she discovered was that the seventh day that she was reading Animal Comics number 27, the story by Walt Kelly, the Albert and Pogo story, was as funny as the first time she read it. And because she and dad were sort of functioning in the world of science fiction fans and she understood editing and recourse to the creators by writing letters, Uh, She and dad wrote to Walt Kelly a fan letter to which he did not respond, but what the heck. And then obviously the series in which Albert and Pogo was running, uh, the, the series was called Animal Comics, clearly was getting into trouble. They, it was on the verge of cancellation and we're now reading between the lines, but that was what was happening. And Mm -hmm. Pogo in a panel says, hey, readers, contact us. Uh, You know, we want to hear from you. And people wrote to respond to that, among them my mom and dad again. This time he responded. And a correspondence ensued in which the wonderful creator built a friendship with my mother and father. I think among other things, he was trying to manipulate what he what his options would be as a comic book, comic strip producer. And at one point, uh, mm-hmm. they had asked for permission to do to name their fanzine for a line from the Pogo story. It was you you show you were refined uh, if you plays cricket, drinks tea, and lifts you pinky when you holds the cup. So they wanted to call their fanzine cricket, <laughs> and they contacted him for permission to use that as an epigraph and he later on said well maybe what he needed was a fanzine to send to his fans and would they edit it Uh so they actually got into a closer and closer relationship which lasted for some time and was picked up years later when his daughter carolyn kelly came to comic-con in san diego And she and I met and had a pajama party and had a wonderful time. And it reconnected me with that. I ended up, finally, what I am doing now is paying some of that debt back because the debt is knowing not only to treasure what you have, to take care of what you have, 
to organize what you have so that you can find it and then to say thank you when someone has given you pleasure. And my way of saying thank you, among other things, is to do what I do now, which is uh, to index uh, Fantagraphics reprints of the Walt Kelly comic strip. And I'm up to volume eight. I just completed the index to volume eight. If you can imagine doing an index to Walt Kelly's work, which consists of many imaginatively spelled words and characters, but I'll do whatever I can to spread the word. My concern right now is few people today know who Walt Kelly was, and it's my mission to spread that word. Yeah, those Fantagraphics volumes are fantastic. I have several of them. I really should get the rest. Yes, um, you should. <laughs> but they're they're amazing. No, they're absolutely amazing. And I, I give a certain amount of credit, of course, to everybody else is working on it as well. And oh, yes. but but what I was going to say is I give a, a, some credit, especially to Mark Evanier for the day he pointed out that Amazon was having a big sale on a couple of them. And I bought them. <laughs> yes, and uh, was just so thrilled. Well, and, and I will mention that at that Comic-Con that was Carolyn's first uh, Comic-Con, she mm-hmm. asked me about who this Mark Evanier guy was because she found him very appealing. And they uh, had a wonderful relationship. And she basically gave him the Walt Kelly papers, which I then flew to Los Angeles to help to try to organize. Because when I said he asked people to write him fan letters to that uh, 1948, I think it was Animal Comics, he kept those letters. And that's kind of amazing. amazing. He kept the records, so many of the records he kept from his incredible career. Wow. Now, from what you're saying, it sounds like you and your family did not actually meet him in person. Am I correct? I did not meet him in person. My mom and dad visited him and his first wife, Helen, twice because one of the projects that he was, my mother was a science fiction writer you've never heard of. So her name was Betsy Curtis and she was nominated for Hugo for one of her short stories, but she, so she understood writing and his idea was that when Pogo went into the newspaper strips, it was as a funny animal strip. It was just going to be knockabout yeah. farce with the animals doing silly things. But he also wanted to mm-hmm. comment on current events because he had been a political cartoonist for the New York Star in addition to doing Pogo. And so suddenly he did not, when the star folded, he did not have a venue any longer for doing his commentary on current events. So his mm-hmm. idea was to propose to the syndicate that they do a a science fiction strip that my mother would help to write and that he would draw. And it would be, well, in modern terms, it would be Mork and Mindy before Mork and Mindy. It would be the the views of an extraterrestrial landing on Earth and commenting on what was going on with current events. And the day that mom and dad were leaving, uh, let's see, I think they were in Canton, New York, at that particular point to drive to Darien, Connecticut, where he lived, the day they were leaving, the Korean War broke out. And the syndicate got back to Walt and said, we don't want anything criticizing anything right now. No Uh satirical remarks, nothing like that. Nope. So they went and visited, had a lovely weekend, came back, and that strip never occurred. So now I've digressed from what, oh, well, so, so eventually he started to fold current events into the strip. Yeah. And I mean, the stories in this particular comic, all the stories in animal comics are really just, they they don't have any of that commentary. Exactly. Exactly. One of the reasons that I picked this as my one hit one, well, first of all, I can't do animal comics because there were lots of issues. The other aspect of this is that What this showed me was that the stories didn't go away just because you didn't have the comic book didn't mean maybe you could, you could never read the story again, but wait a minute, what if they reprinted it? And that's what this volume is. It is a reprint, a 25 cent Dell reprint of the, some of the stories that had run in animal comics. One of the things you probably observed is that there's one story in the middle that seems very out of step 
because there's a human character in the swamp in the swamp inhabitants and if you go back to read the first ever albert and pogo story the focus was on albert but the other focus was mm -hmm. a little black child named bumbazine now just as a yep. footnote bumbazine is a type of fabric <laughs> and I have sometimes, I, I am not sure that he, that Kelly wasn't just given a script and told to do what he wanted with it. I uh. think he became increasingly uncomfortable with the idea of any humans in the story and the concerns about, for example, how do you color, think about this, how do you color a right. comic book in which you have for example, black features, so slightly larger lips, blah, blah. Well, the colorist would, if so frequently, like color the lips pink and it was grotesque as opposed to the yeah. quite beautiful drawings that he would do of this kid who, by the way, clearly was the smartest mm -hmm. character among all the characters in the swamp. He knew what was going on. He was not, he, he, <clears throat> he is very, very well-spoken throughout throughout yes. the, uh, among, the story. among all the among all the anthropomorphic you know scheming animals i mean they're animals but they're basically people <laughs> right right and uh so he finally just didn't use bumbazine anymore as a character but there is one bumbazine story in there which was the first time i yes. had ever seen that character because i came so late into the series and he dealt with that if you check Walt Kelly's stories from that same era he was also doing his own stories featuring the kids in yes. the Our Gang uh, live action material. And again, it was an integrated right. cast. And not only was it an integrated cast, but again, Buckwheat, who had been the character in the live action films, becomes Bucky. He's a track star. Again, he's the smartest kid of all the kids. He works out how mm -hmm. to handle things. He and And it was one of the only truly integrated strips that I'm aware of. Again, keeping in mind, it's an old white guy doing it. I think yeah, he did a yeah. wonderful job considering that, but the option to deal with animals only pulls it out and lets you enjoy the stories for the stories and not be concerned too much about what isn't being said or how it's being handled. We can do farce mm -hmm. and we can do commentaries uh, without additional baggage. Yeah, more stories about, you know, if you pardon the expression, human nature. Yes, <laughs> yes. a lot of people trying to, characters trying to get one over on each other, you know. Exactly. And by the way, staying pretty consistent. Yes, absolutely. The other funny thing I was going to mention about the Bumbazine story is it's old Albert is really a deer um, from yes. Animal Comics number nine. And it features a deer character who is sort of a little Red Riding Hood stand in. It, it, just in that she's kind of seen, you know, traipsing through the, the swampland with a picnic basket, basically. Yes. Um, but she's very flirty, which yes. is unusual for these stories. Most of them are very, you know, there, there's never any suggestion of that kind of relationship between animals. They're, they're all big kids who are playing tricks on each other. That is mostly. a beautiful description. That is exactly what's uh, going on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm such a big fan. I, um, if I, I maybe I've mentioned this before to you, Maggie, but I discovered Walt Kelly because when I was a kid, I would go to the mall where there was a Walden Books, mm. and um, I would just sort of haunt the humor section, the cartoon section, to see what was around because I was sort of a voracious fan of anything related to comics. And they had a copy of Ten Ever Love and Blue Eyed Years with, with Pogo. Oh my yes, which I of course never, never, never seen, never heard of, but I picked it up, and you know. This is before UPCs even, so that's how old I am. Um, <laughs> yes. But it had a, a sticker with the price for that was uh, four ninety five, and mm -hmm. I looked around because, you know, I was a kid, and I peeled off the sticker. Um... There was another – I know. That was bad. <laughs> and there was another sticker under it that said three ninety five, or maybe Ooh. it was five ninety five, four ninety five. And then I peeled off the next sticker, and it was three ninety five, and that's what I – took it to the cash register. I thought for this much, I got to see what this thing is. And of course it was, you know, you just fall into that world because it's such a great book that it, it introduces Pogo with, you know, Kelly's commentary and tons of great strips from the early days of the, of the comic strips run. 
right? Yep. It started in the New York Star in 1948. And I will point out that yes. Chris Duffy, in your eighth episode of this series, cited the three uh, greats of non-superhero comics were Carl mm. Barks, John Stanley, and Walt Kelly. And I absolutely agree. Yes. Those those were the geniuses. Yeah, absolutely. And Walt Kelly, in particular, was seem, seemed to be so prolific, from my point of view, at least, because he was doing it, writing, penciling and inking all these stories and lettering them. I mean, I think we may have mentioned this in that episode. Maybe it was a different episode, but you know, oh no, no, I know it was. Somebody was talking about Walt Kelly on social media somewhere, and I posted a, a Pogo original strip, mm. and people were talking about, look how beautifully he draws the trees, and he draws this, and he draws that, and I said, hey, even the panel borders are beautiful. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, nobody, almost nobody had an approach so distinctive. Well, and occasionally he would make use of the panel borders. So for example, when Albert was going to light a cigar, he would strike a match mm. on the panel border. Oh yeah. So, no. So great <laughs> there was a meta, play, right? Yeah. And, and actually in terms of meta, he did that a lot. Uh, there's one, I think it's coming up in the eighth volume. Anyway, the characters are in the splash panel of a Sunday and and one of the characters says to the other, "Wow, look at the beautiful trees! Look how going, look how well they're drawn." Uh, yes, <laughs> so. there, there was a story like that in this. I wish I had made, made a note of exactly which one it was, yeah. where the character. Oh wait, I just happened to open to it. Yeah. Where it's um, Albert the Whaler, and Albert mm, says, yes. "Come, come out there, Dan. We us got to get through eight pages for to get through <laughs> about twelve pages of action." Exactly. It's a, yes, you know, it's so funny. Kelly, Kelly had that training with Disney yes. years before. And I always think people who start in animation learn how to draw really with a real great facility and speed. <laughs> I don't know yes. why that is. And also uh, and an understanding of the volume of their characters. Like they look the same from every angle. They have that weight. They have that solidity that not every artist can bring to the, the that kind of drawing. Mom and dad asked him about that at one point. They said, how do you visualize the mm. characters? And he said he, he has them in his mind. And he said, then he turned them as necessary for the particular uh, <laughs> panel that he was drawing them in. I will point mm. out that he actually began before he went to Disney, he did, he contributed to St. Nicholas magazine and he has mm. a strip. He has a, a half page feature in the comics magazine. Number one, which is uh, 1930s. Wow. But yes. I, I, again, because I saw his papers, uh, his diary, his pocket diary was, mm -hmm. I'm going to apply to Walt Disney. So seriously, not mm -hmm. only his high school yearbooks, but also such things as that. Yes, his pocket diary saying, I'm going to apply to work at Disney. And I think there you have some peer pressure and peer training. So for example, Ward Kimball, was a dear friend of his whom he met at the yes. Disney place and worked with mm. the Disney yeah. place. Well-spoken Maggie. Wow. Place. Wow. Particular. <laughs> the Disney place. Oh, you know, um, it's, yeah, it's so funny. So these depictions of the characters, of course, this is early on, you know, these are early stories and they're not as visually appealing in a lot of ways as they got to be in by the mid fifties, let's say. Right. I'm actually looking at, so I'm reading these stories, I should mention, I'm reading these stories from the Pogo Parade one-shot. In Walt Kelly's Pogo, the complete Dell Comics volume one, which is a hardcover from Hermes Press, and it's the entire run of the stories from Animal Comics, and it's a great book, but I had to kind of go through and tag all the stories from Pogo Parade to sort of re reassemble it or something, yes. reconstitute it. But as an example, if on page 114 here, I know you don't have the book in front of you, but um, oh, it's I Animal Comics number 13, Albert the Whaler, and uh, Churchy Lafemme, who's a, a character, is in it in his pirate hat, and he looks so mean and so um, ornery. And then right after the story is ended, there's a page from Pogo Possum number one, the comic book from a few years later, and Churchy is on that, and he's much more his sweet self. Right. I am trying to, I, actually, I believe this 
story might be Churchy's first appearance. Yes, because he says, he says, uh, as Captain Churchy La Femme at your service. So again, we have a pun for Cherche La Femme, which means find the woman. Oh, yeah. And that is his name, but it's also sort of taking off on other, et cetera, on, on piratical names. But yeah, I believe that is mm-hmm. his first appearance. But he was a good yes. enough character that they, that well, morphed him into the amiable fool that he became. Yes. And uh, Helen Owl, I think, is in this story as well. And they, quite, yes. yes, he is. And they actually became a team. If you look at the strip, quite frequently the comedy is was there mm-hmm. interchange with the different takes on whatever the comedic moment is. So yeah. just noticing. So yes, so we have an introductory, an introduction of a character in this volume. Again, as I say, the first time I knew there was an origin, I mean, I had never seen that when I first started to read the comic books. I just plunged into the stories <laughs> as they were. Sure. I think I learned that phrase, Cherche la femme, from an early Doonesbury comic. There you go. Uh, strip. <laughs> which they they actually defined it there, which is like it's uh, Mike and somebody, BD maybe, going out on sure. a road trip to find America. And Mike said, or one of them says, you know, well, don't forget, as my dad said, Cherche la femme. The other guy goes, what? Yep. <laughs> and, you know, he says, keep an eye peel for broads. <laughs> <laughs> well, well translated, yes. Uh, yeah. And in fact, one of the fascinations <laughs> with Pogo is the wordplay. And that is, I think, what my parents initially oh, gosh, responded yeah. to was it, Walt Kelly is nonstop wordplay. One of the things that my mother told me later that her mother had complained about was that my language as a toddler was very bad. And I, <laughs> they shouldn't be using bad language around me. And what did Albert and oh, Pogo you mean, do? You mean... But, yeah, Rauer Basel. It gave them terms that they could use <laughs> that would properly express their feeling without being uh, antisocial to the world. <clears throat> or that is funny. Mom. I thought you meant you just had you, you were just um, a little slow on, on you know learning to talk or something, which huh. you know happens as well. But no, no Maggie you too talked. Well. Maggie talked, and then Maggie had rheumatic fever at age five, and so Maggie learned to read. She was Judy then, by the way, my middle name. Right, yes. And and so uh, what happened was mom and dad couldn't agree on a nickname for Margaret. And so they went to my middle name, which was a family name. The family name is Judson. And uh, so mm. I was Judy from Judson until I went into junior high because the teachers kept writing Judith on my report card. And mom would oh. cross <laughs> it out and write uh, Margaret. And I would get in trouble for defacing my report card. And so I said, well, when I went uh, to junior high, I was just going to take Margaret. And then I didn't have a nickname, but Maggie seemed automatic. Later on, years later, I asked Maggie. my agent if I should pick a different name. And she said, I can't imagine a more memorable name than Maggie. So keep it. So I did it. No, it's, okay. of course, lo- lovely and wonderful. <laughs> I'm surprised. I'm surprised Margaret was not the name, you know, entered on the records at school when you when you started school, actually. Uh, it should have been. Um, should have been. Yeah. My mother had a, a little problem like that when she started school, which is that her name's Jacqueline, Jackie. Mm-hmm. Right. But at home, uh, up until she started school, she, her parents called her Joy. Ah. She don't even know why particularly. So she got to school and, you know, the teacher was taking attendance yep. to Jacqueline. She didn't respond. Right. And they sent her home saying, this child is, we think she's deaf. <laughs> oh, she didn't uh, respond to her name. Sure. I can see that. Absolutely. Yeah. You're not talking, you talking to me? What? Hmm? Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, there she we are. Over. And as you, as, uh, as you note, uh, the, in the first fan letter that they wrote to Walt Kelly, they mentioned that, oh, yeah. uh, they mentioned my sister's nickname and I'm talking baby in the high chair was Pogo. They called her Pogo. So just saying. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, that's hilarious. So now your parents were actually kind of unusual in the grand scheme of things for accepting comics as a, a source of reading material that far back. Well, what happened was, okay, so dad was serving as a medic in Italy during World War II. Mm. Mom's got baby, toddler, slightly older, Judy, and in order to keep the family going, et cetera, she worked at, at Cornell in the music department and uh, various other departments. So she had a full-time job while dad was in the army. So wow. they did what 
a lot of people did during World War II. They arranged, you know, oh, I'll take care of your child while you do X, Y, or Z. And mm. I believe that it was one of the babysitting parents who suggested that comic books might be something that would entertain me. I believe that is how it started. And mom and dad, <laughs> well, dad is noted in the army, didn't have a lot of say at that point, but mom found <laughs> enough entertainment that uh, she supported that. Remember, you're learning to read the left page first and the right page second. And so you're learning, you've got art contexts and it's, that's how I learned to read was through comic books with mom Amazing, yeah. leaning over my shoulder and saying, how do you, what is P-O-W spell? Oh, okay. Pow. Got it. And <laughs> you learn to sign out from that. Sure. Mm. And mom <laughs> was a, she had a master's degree in English, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. Uh, I assume you gravitated toward funny animal comics generally. Well, my, my basic, among the ones that I remember from that era were, as noted, uh, the John Stanley, but also the Carl Barks. So the the other memorable comic book that I recall from that point. Now, mind you, the Pogo Parade, I was 10. I bought that off the stands. Yes. And by the way, when I went just to check it this morning, I discovered, oh, yes, this is actually the copy I bought from the newsstand with my 10-year-old writing Judy Curtis up in the upper corner. So this oh is my, my the goodness. actual copy I bought off the newsstand. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, as I say, that's what you learn is if you like something, you take care of it and you keep it. So, wow. and of course I'm digressed now. Oh yes. Uh, was uh, the other memorable story from my learning to read with comics era was the old castle's secret, which was a Donald mm. Duck Dell four color. And the reason yep. that it stuck with me is I, think it gave me nightmares. It disturbed me deeply. Invisible <laughs> skeletons with swords. Come on. Oh, yeah. So as yep, Carl Barks, I was genius, right? 52-page story, oh, whatever, yeah. all comics. And I think I must have expressed concerns because at one point it just disappeared. How did that happen? Mm. I mean, I was bedridden. Oh. How did that happen? How did that comic book go away? I bet mom stole it. I bet she Ugh. trashed it because, yes, because I was so disturbed. Because it was scaring you? <laughs> yes. Come on. Invisible skeletons. I, yeah, it's frightening to say the least. I have to tell you, one of the first comics I remember reading was one of the very last Uncle Scrooge stories Barks wrote. He didn't draw it. King Scrooge Shaw the first, and it scared the heck out of me, too, because the story is basically about this faker that they kind of run into in a park who want to tell their fortunes and he re he recognizes them as the reincarnations we're mixing you know concepts now but the reincarnations of egyptian royalties from a thousand years ago yep and he poofs them back to ancient egypt to find the treasure and it turns out the treasure is cure for the immortality he's been cursed with. I mean, he wanted to be immortal, this wizard. Wow. But now it's a thousand years and everyone he knows is long gone and he's miserable. So he take and the last panels are, you know, he takes the immortality. He turns into dust, right? Cure. He turns into dust and, yep. and walks out of the, the comic forever. And I just yep. thought that was scary as heck. Yep. So, well, yeah. look at the influences of these. Look at the influences of these guys. Like Carl Barks scenes from Raiders of the Lost Ark is two uh, Carl Barks stories. Now we're totally digressing, but think about that. <laughs> so for example, in one of the stories, the ducks are in there and the Incas are going, they're raiders. The raiders are coming here. So yeah, the ducks yeah. are the raiders. Okay. And yeah. And never mind all the other similarities, the, the influences of the oh, sure. so-called funny animals Pretty good. Pretty good. Yes. So now going back to the Pogo Parade stories and animal comics, really, because that's the source of them. There are a couple of stories in here where it looks like, if, if I had to guess, they had to squeeze the story down a page or two. And like the they're shorter and mm -hmm. the panels are smaller and yep. the, the panel borders are much more square. And it really looks like somebody had to go in and make a five-page story fit into four pages or something like that. Does that make sense to you? 
I don't think I've ever analyzed it to that level, but it's certainly possible. <laughs> Keep in mind that Oscar Lebeck was Kelly's editor. And I will oh, yeah. point out, by the way, he says uh, what in the in the inside front cover, Kelly describes this project. He says, uh, the mm -hmm. reason for such a salutation, oh, he, he opens it, dear fellow passengers, the reason for such a salutation <laughs> is that we are all willy-nilly going to the same way in relentless companionship, like it or not. Here is a record uh, where mm -hmm. some of us have been since 1942 when Pogo started in business as a possum. At the request of thousands of friends, well, a man stepped by the house. We are reprinting some of the high spots, gullies, and quicksands of Pogo's comic book career. So that is that is the goal here. But these are as right. they originally appeared in Animal Comics. And as I say, yes, quite possibly he was given an assignment to say, you've got five pages or six pages, please fill this spot. It's also I'm not sure. the only contributions he made to Animal Comics. He also was working as work for hire for Oscar Lebeck, the editor on a number of different comics. And one of the ones, by the way, that he continued while he was still doing the Pogo comic strip. So into that early uh, a point in the Pogo strip was uh, an advertising comic book for a baking company, uh, which is Walt Kelly mm, doing Swords yes. and Sorcery. So I totally recommend that as well. And I believe that you can find that in an expensive hardcover as well. But I, it was my introduction to the concept of swords and sorcery, which is ah. that in order to get uh, the wheat into the bread that you love to eat, the little folk of the wheat field <laughs> protect the wheat from the evil hornet knights. And we suddenly have a takeoff on uh, Milton Kniff's Terry and the Pirates because one of the hornets is the dragon lady, except here she's Dragonelle, queen of the hornets, and uh, oh eventually, yeah, eventually she allies with the little folk of the wheat field when the other hornets don't realize that a flood that endangers the wheat also endangers the hornets. And so they should join forces, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you can just imagine mm -hmm. getting free comic books with your bread delivery, swords <laughs> and sorcery comic books drawn and plotted by Walt Kelly, uh, something else, just saying. I'll have to take a look for that. I, um, yep. I've certainly heard of Peter Wheat, but I had no idea what the concept was other than Walt Kelly drew it. Right. Which, you know, he drew Well, as noted, stuff, wrote and yeah. drew. So he also did, by the way, yes. Animal Mother Goose, which I have been campaigning quietly for for a while. As I think it needs to be reprinted around oh, in Raggedy Ann and Andy comics. And it was just traditional yeah. Mother Goose, but it had Kelly pictures. So they were pretty crazy. I'm sure. Yeah, we used to read some of the, like, I think Innovation reprinted yep. a bunch of the... Eclipse um, also. The Christmas stories. Yes. And um, we used to read them to my kids when they were little, you know, at Christmas time. So that was special. <laughs> yes. Well, Santa Claus, when Santa Claus was leaving presents uh, downstairs, I was upstairs reading uh, Christmas with Mother Goose uh, to uh, mm. Valerie and Stephen. I'm just saying. Yep. Yep. Oh, lovely. Yeah. So a lot of these stories, I'm going to say, feel to me a little like Warner Brothers or Disney, more Warner Brothers, uh, animated shorts yep. in that they start with a concept, you know, a, a setup, if you will. Yep. And then just see where it goes. Exactly. They're not tightly plotted, but they are, you know, let's follow the train of logic no matter how crazy it gets. Exactly. Which, you know works wonderfully because these are characters who are very silly and in a weird way unpredictable right right and yeah. and uh expanding again and another one that i thought about recommending because it to, it is one of a kind but it isn't is there was a del four color there was more than one del four color mm -hmm. that was just albert and pogo stories but they were done for that specific comic book and it's a little more disciplined a full color painting of the cover and so mm -hmm. forth. And so again, that was uh, mom and dad when they wrote to Walt is just how much they adored the language and the images and so forth that, that came, came into our dialect, our dialogue. So uh, what is it? Albert is stuck out in the rain and he's been locked out of his house 
and he's got a wooden spoon and he's holding it over his head and he says, uh, I can't oh, yeah. see and dish spoon don't keep off much rain is again, that, <laughs> that became a family saying when we would be out in the rain and <laughs> uh, we didn't have anything to keep the rain off. Yeah. Yeah. The major foursome of the strip, obviously it's Albert Pogo and then Howland and Churchy kind of on the next level. Yep. And they all sort of represent different types of personalities. And I'm wondering if there's one that you identify more with or less with, uh, you know, or as a kid and as an adult, mm. or well, do you, do you I, find them I all? think they're, I think Pogo, I think one of the reasons Pogo took over as the, title of the strip and so forth is he's sort of the common man, mm -hmm. if you will, in the midst of zany characters. And it doesn't mean, yes. it doesn't mean that he's not also silly, but he kind of reacts the way you should react, not should react, but the way you would react if this were happening. Mm -hmm. And in the first story, which is not in this collection, but the concept is that uh, Albert wants to eat Pogo. So in the very earliest right. story, let's face it, he's an alligator. Pogo's a possum. What do alligators yeah. eat? And and actually, yeah. that is a conundrum that Kelly continued to deal with throughout the strip, is that the characters apparently mm -hmm. lived on catfish. But the catfish also yeah. sometimes had dialogue. And, <laughs> and yeah. they interacted. It is a conundrum. Them. Yes, yes. How do you handle that? And he just sort of ignored it. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention the many times that Albert accidentally eats someone yes. or was accused of, quote, can cannibalism, unquote. Yes. I mean, yep. it was a constant, you know, he was always a convenient scapegoat for the other characters because yes. he's an alligator. Yes. He's scary. Yes. Yes. So, Absolutely. Even though he's ridiculous. Even, yes. And and then you go as a which which fragments of Kelly's personality are reflected in the various characters. And one of Kelly's self image caricatures that he used repeatedly was he mm. did smoke cigars and Carolyn had commented to me, his daughter had commented to me that she loved the smell of cigars. And I'm going, you are one of the few uh. people on the planet because to her it was dad. Right. And, sure. yeah. but it's also whenever we have a character smoking a cigar, it's usually a sort of a disgruntled, disheveled, not particularly cultivated character. So it's self-mockery mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, certainly. Now, I want to go back and ask you about something you mentioned earlier, because you said that you got a dime every week to go buy a comic book. Yes. This is a 25 cent comic book, Maggie. How do you explain that? Because I was 10 by then. My dime was when oh, I was oh, oh, I three or four. By this time, oh, my exactly. allowance had worked its way up to, I think it was at least a quarter. It might have been 90 cents, but that's pretty high. I'm not sure. Uh, but I also had to incorporate into that going to the movies. So maybe I was even up to a dollar <laughs> at this point. I'm just saying. Because you got the movies, which is Damn. a quarter, and then you got the candy because you have to eat at that. And then you still need the comic book. I'm just saying. Right. My, my economics uh, this, as a child. I love it. Yeah. No, I, I had similar situations, of course, later. But, you know, yeah, it's like, how many comic books can I get? Do I have anything left over? Right. For well, and one of the things candy? that happened, one of the things that happened as my mom and dad wrote to Walt Kelly was we love this material so much. We're going to buy copies also. So that if anything uh, happens to Judy's copies, we will still have copies because we have other, we will have other children. And I can tell mm -hmm. when I've got one of the ones from my initial collection is because mom <laughs> wrote a code on the first interior page of the comic book, which will like for uh, Dragon Ann and Andy would be RA129, what, you know, so it would be the, the issue number, but then which numbered copy was it of the ones that we had so yeah they took it seriously they understood collecting guess where i came from i understand collecting <laughs> that's amazing and i i cannot imagine because my parents did not know which way to hold a comic book up or down you know oh my yeah <laughs> they, they they really well not quite that bad but you know i remember yeah. my dad picking up a comic book once or twice and just being perplexed yep. 
Whereas my mom and dad uh-huh. were reading them and judging them. And by the way, reviewing them in their <laughs> fanzine. So they probably are among the earliest, in a way, earliest comics fanzine publishers, the cricket as noted. Uh, it was like, yeah. well, in my house, in our household right now, our children are enjoying A, B, and C, you know, whatever the titles were. And again, recommending, in fact, I think it was the Square Egg story, a Carl Barks uh, Lost in the Andes oh, yeah. uh, that, that mom recommended and said, you know, if you can find a copy out there, that is an outstanding issue. So mm. parental criticism. That's amazing. Yeah. Yep. Uh, when did you and your household became aware, become aware of Pogo in the newspapers? Oh, right away. By that point, remember, they were, oh, okay. they were corresponding with him and they lived in New York okay. so they could see the New York star and they clipped it every, and in fact, I have somewhere in my house, the, they, they took sheets of paper and pasted uh, Elmer's glue or whatever, uh, pasted the strips in um, for, mm. for the time. And then when he, when it was syndicated, he sent them proofs, I believe at one point until they could subscribe to the post hall uh, newspaper that began it. So again, the benefit of being friends okay. from the comic book days. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. One of the, you know, nearly the top of the list, maybe just about the top of the list for great comic strips, whether it was doing just slapstick and silliness or, you know, political commentary as it got to do after right. a few years, it was yeah. just amazing. I mean, I always was so impressed and granted, I have not read every Poco comic, but I was always so impressed with the way he, there was political commentary, but it wasn't, it didn't hit you over the head. You could still enjoy the comic, even if you didn't quite know what they were talking about with, you know, ca- characters like Simple J. Malarkey or whoever. <laughs> yes. And I don't know, it's just the way he, he incorporated it into the strip was, it was so impressive. I, well, I, I want thought. you to consider the fact that I am indexing the Fantagraphics strip reprints and every once in a while, somebody just, okay. There is a Facebook group called mm-hmm. I go Pogo and I'm mm-hmm. a member of that group. And somebody about a month ago was saying, uh, who is Haggerty in this particular panel? And it was, uh, mm-hmm. it was something like uh, notify the media, call Haggerty, blah, blah. And I go, Doggone it! I missed that when I was indexing it, and it was it was uh, uh, the press secretary uh, who went on oh, to okay. uh, yeah who who went on to be a, a network guy, and so mm. I I said now it's published. There's nothing I could do about it, but I missed that when I was indexing because just uh-huh. trying to identify who he's talking about at any particular point, especially when he had fun with names. Um, yes. Yeah. So that's. That's part of the challenge for the indexer. It is really. So um, what else do we want to say specifically about Pogo Parade? Yeah. You know, one of the things I wanted to mention actually was the concept of it as a reprint comic book. Cause I don't, I don't know that there was much being reprinted at that time. I mean, exactly. DC didn't start reprinting things till about 1960. And I, I know from my many years there at DC, it was Irwin Donenfeld, you know, who's the second publisher at DC, who's a son of Harry Donenfeld, right. who I was the first person to say, hey, let's keep the black line film yes. in case we want to ever reuse these comics. Yes. And that's where they started doing the 80-page giants and things. Yes. But before that, that was just not even a concept. When Don and I, when Don and I yeah. visited Dick and Pat Lupoff when they were living in Poughkeepsie, New York, that's where mm. the Western printing plant was. And we did a tour. I think the guy's name was Tom McTaggart, but I am not sure. But he was kind enough to take us on a tour of the whole printing plant in Poughkeepsie. And we said, are you keeping the the black plate? Are you keeping a proof of the black uh, material? And they said, no, we're not doing that because we actually kept the printing plate. So we said the lead plate for these, for the whole, yeah. yep, yep, yep. And we go, well, how would the floors even support that weight? And he goes, well, un- understand, yeah. he said, uh, the just the, the weight of the presses and so forth. He said, oh, no, we, we, we basically, that's not a problem for us. Now, of course, what that meant eventually was they went away. But 
they at that point they had kept their printing plate and every once so i think it was simpler for them again you had mentioned uh in your eighth episode the the dell versus the western printing and lithographing and Mm. dell was the distributor so dell maintained its own comics racks so it didn't pay a oh, racking really? fee per se. They were not an they were not distributed by an independent distributor. They were their own distributor. So they did the Dell paperbacks, the mapbacks, the mysteries, the whatevers were all in a separate rack. But then that whoever that kept that rack provided also kept the Dell comic books on the racks, etc. And huh. so so Western Printing printed it, Dell distributed it. And those of us who didn't understand that back in the day, we we wrote to uh, the president of Dell as identified in the yeah. Indicia, uh, and we said uh, at the Dell Four Color Comics, we said, "What's the list of the Dell Four? What number goes with what title?" And she said, uh, her her reply was very civil, but she said, we don't have any such record. So if you want to know, you'll have to compile it yourself, which we did as fans, mm-hmm. but. The fact that Dell wasn't keeping track, Western probably would have, but we didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. All the things the fans had to work their way through back in the day. Yes, I know. It's between that and most, you know, 99% of the comics not having any credits on them. Exactly. The the anonymity of most of them, which was one of the advantages to being Walt Kelly. He was doing his own strip, so he signed it. But John Stanley couldn't sign his material. Carl Barks wouldn't sign his material. No. And, yeah. I know. I, I'm always amazed at that. And I'm always amazed at, like, Walt Kelly, I mean, not only did he sign his work, but he signed it relatively early on yes. in these animal comic stories. Yes. yes. They must have, I don't know, either Oscar Lebeck really liked him or they recognized um, actually, that he was a selling feature. Actually, if you look at the Oscar Lebeck material in animal comics, the creators are permitted to sign most of their material. Oh. The pseudonyms are for Uncle Wiggly and uh, Raggedy Ann and Andy there. So my mother thought back in the day where it said uh, Raggedy Ann and Andy copyright by Johnny Gruel. She thought, oh, Johnny Gruel Mm -hmm. is the cartoonist doing the material. Well, he died eight years earlier before the first Raggedy Ann and Andy comic book. And Howard R. Garris, who Uh did Uncle Wiggly, who was in Animal Comics, he gets his little copyright and it isn't signed. But the other material, the the creator, the, the writer artists frequently were absolutely allowed to encouraged to identify the material they'd done. So Dan Noonan uh, got to sign yes. Edward Elephant and his friends, et cetera. And, uh, and by, excuse me. Uh, and by the way, that was okay. one of the early con- uh, uh, communications that mom and dad had with Walt Kelly was, Hey, who is Dan Noonan? Who is, et cetera. Who are these people? Where are they? And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was uh, Noonan is a, Something rather, Noonan is a dandy. Noonan is a broken nose eating sugar candy. Was his response to their <laughs> question about information for the other contributors? Oh my gosh, that's amazing! Something else I wanted to ask about, which is that you know, original artwork was a point of contention for comic book artists for many years until you know the mid seventies when finally the big companies started returning pages regularly right. for the most part. And obviously, you know, eventually Marvel had to return off an awful lot of pages um, that were in their warehouse. But just looking even through this Hermes book, it looks and and from what I've seen elsewhere, you know, it looks like Walt Kelly was getting his pages back very early on from the comic strip. I mean, was that do you think that was a standard thing for comic strip artists that they would get their pages back or? I think the strip artists had a cachet that the comic book artists did not. Yeah. So the comic book artists are work for hire. The comic strip artists tended to own their comic strips, which is why you wanted to be a comic strip artist, not a comic book artist. This is a yes. surmise, but I think that is where it comes from. And in some cases, they uh, they really didn't want it. And in other cases, they wanted it fiercely and couldn't get it. The mm-hmm. the other example, so as, as Carolyn and I were, or not Carolyn and I, as, as Mark Evanier and I were going through some of the material, uh, Walt got some of it back and some of it not. But 
one of the mm-hmm. things I noticed with the Peter Wheat comics was that he didn't even keep, apparently didn't even keep reference material from one issue to the next. So if he had a continued story <laughs> and he had introduced character A in issue number 12, in issue number 13, that character might be drawn completely differently because he didn't have a reference anymore oh. to what he'd done. Yeah, this happened. There was a fairy tale really series, uh, I think four issues, a wonderful story about Peter Wheat going to fairyland. And uh, yeah, the the characters they interact with do not look the same from issue to issue. <laughs> That's hilarious. Hey, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention, by the way, that Pogo is virtually the only property ever to go from comic books to comic strips successfully mm. and stay huh. there hmm. because there's a challenge, right? Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, you can come up with people, individual artists and writers oh, sure. who were working in comic books and, you know, tried to break into comic strips, of course, Sure. but the actual property, I don't, I mean, mm. that that's mentioned in the Hermes press book uh, introduction right. uh, by Thomas Andre, but I mean, I, I can't come up with another one. I can't offhand. Yeah. For one thing, I, for one thing, Walt, Walt actually did an arrangement with, I think, with Oscar Lebeck that gave him rights to the character. He, I think he actually had a contract drawn up um, that, that yeah. conferred well, the rights uh, to him. Yeah, he'd, he'd have to. Yeah. Um, do something or else, you know. The, the publisher would be asking a lot of questions, I well, think. Well, and, and the flip side of that was, remember, Animal Comics had folded because it was so unsuccessful. Yeah. And then he managed to sell it back to Dell slash Western uh, because there actually was a Pogo comic book series yeah. that that was uh, popularized by the comic strip. So there is that. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I, I used to have a bunch of those issues. And I. I don't know. These kind of fell apart after a while. Well, it, it started in 1949, which is act after the right. strip began in the New York Star, and it ran till 1954. Which so Pogo yes. Parade came out in the middle of that. Yeah, yeah, right. And those comics are all being reprinted in this Hermes Press series, right? Or have been, I suppose. Had been, now. yes. Yeah, yeah. There's a funny disconnect in a way, stylistic disconnect between the 1953 drawn cover of Pogo Parade and the interiors, which go all the way back to the mid forties. Oh, exactly. And are, you know, well, it's, it's years of evolution. It's years of evolution. It's years of saying this works, this doesn't work. Churchy LaFemme's hat is too big. Uh, let's uh, change it that way. And <laughs> yeah. then the decision to make Pogo cuter because he starts out and, and uh, uh-huh. he mentions that in 10 ever loving blue eyed years with Pogo, he says uh, he was pretty wretched looking yep. initially, but uh, you know, we cuted <laughs> him up kind of thing. And actually the yes. cartoon of him that appears in 10 ever loving blue eyed years, supposedly representing Pogo as he appeared first in the strip is much cuter than he appears in that first story. Yeah, it is. He couldn't help himself in a right. way. I think, you know, his right. hand just draws cute it at does. that point. Yes. So, I will also fantastic. mention, just be, just so we don't not acknowledge it, uh, eventually being a strip artist, he was able to hire assistants. So Henry Shikuma, for example, was one of his assistants. And one, in the book that I, I think the one I just indexed, there's a uh, something off in the distance is, la- is labeled uh, the Shikuma Mattress Company. So they got to work their, <laughs> their little names and references in as gags sometimes. Oh, that's great. I'm trying to remember the name of the other assistant whose name I recall from the comic books. Uh, what was his name, though? Mm, oh, well. You're going to embarrass recall. me because I really don't remember all the people I'm he sorry. worked with. Well, you know, yep. yes, clearly he, he had a few. Yep. When the com- when a comic strip runs that long, yes, very yes. few people can manage without help. Exactly. <laughs> Especially exactly. when you're doing concurrent comics, concurrent comic books. And then book collections that had all sorts of ancillary material added. Sure. Well, I mean, and I think those... Shikuma, I think Shikuma did the lettering too in the strip later because somebody mm. asked about what about the lettering. And Kelly was really good with lettering, but was perfectly happy yes. to turn that over to Shikuma to to provide that. Right. Right. And I hope I'm pronouncing um, his name right. Oh yeah, yeah. I I, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> yep. Anything else we want to say about Pogo Parade? I would love to see material 
made available on an ongoing basis uh, for all the comic books I ever loved <laughs> because, <laughs> because it, yes. And I'm sorry, but having rolling shelves with comic books on them so that I can find issue number, whatever, when I'm writing about comic book advertising, which by the way, is an upcoming, uh, 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 I do a, a monthly column for Comic-Con and uh, my next uh, one is going to be on that. By the way, I solved just as a footnote here, the kinds of things I do for Comic-Con. Yeah. I solved a mystery uh -huh. that I had been wondering about for decades and did, did the big reveal two months ago. So my right. mother bought Woman's Day magazine at the store. It was seven cents, cheaper than a comic book. And <laughs> the issue from June 1956 cover featured Danny Kaye. But in the upper right mm -hmm. corner... There was a box that said, starting in this issue, as an exciting serial, something like that, it says. And I read that, and I really liked that first installment. So I read all four installments, loved it, loved the characters, et cetera, et cetera, loved the pictures. And when that serial was printed in book form, when it was reformatted into book form, on the copyright page, it mm -hmm. said, this book, origin this novel originally appeared in Woman's Day magazine with different illustrations. Huh. Years later, when it was transformed into another property, the 101 Dalmatians had <laughs> the characters designed per Woman's Day magazine artist, who has never been identified, as far as I know, until my big reveal occurred, had never been identified. Because who kept old huh. issues of Woman's Day magazine around? But I was a children's <laughs> librarian for two and a half years. And William Penn Dubois won a Newbery Award for Distinguished Contribution to Children's Literature and was nominated for Caldecott Award for Picture Books for two years. And he doggone well-designed Cruella de Vil in 1956. Oh, my gosh. Yep. That is fantastic. I Just love saying. that. Pictures. Yeah. Pictures and, and stories. That's what we like, right? Right. The other book I've ever heard of or read by Dodie Smith, the writer mm -hmm. of 101 Dalmatians, sure, sure. was I Capture the Castle, I believe was her. Oh, okay. Hers. This one I do not know. Um, so you're, you're recommending that now, I look that up? Cool. No, not necessarily. Oh. oh <laughs> I'm going to oh. double check real quick while we're talking. But uh, I <laughs> found it really impressive. That's what the internet is for. I, yeah, it is. I Capture the Castle. It's a depressing story about growing up in a dilapidated castle in oh. um, I think Northern England or something and Ooh. having no money. And, you know, it might be worth looking at. I don't know. I remember seeing a, a little of it um, probably 20 years ago and just thinking, wow, wow yeah. this is quite the contrast to 101 Dalmatians. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know? Sure. But yeah, I captured the castle is, is her, one of her other books. The first novel by Dodie Smith. I'm reading a little bit about it. Okay. Oh, so she'd done that before. Oh. Yes, okay. that wow. was from, I'm looking at it now, First English Edition, 1949. Wow. And as I say, wow. uh, 101 Dalmatians, called originally The Great Dog Robbery, was 1956. Which would have been a good title, although 101 Dalmatians, also good. Sure, sure, yeah. Yeah, that <sighs> book was so popular, and that movie was so popular, I should say. I had a book when I was a child called Too Many Dogs, which mm -hmm. is a very similar concept. <laughs> Gee, I think my think. mom still has a copy of it. Well, and we all remember we that Disney Disney originated the uh, that was their first uh, photocopy uh, where they would use photocopying for the the original yes. art on the cells because otherwise you couldn't do it. There were too many dots, which which reminds me of Teen Titans Go. I don't know if you have mm -hmm. been watching the 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 current series on tell well now not current i guess the season has ended or whatever but they had an installment in yeah. which the animators are going on strike because they realized that if they ah. just put black bars over the mouths of all the characters it would be less to animate <laughs> talk about meta yeah that yeah. is actually I, I, i'll tell you i'll do you one better on that there is there was a great show i think it was on nickelodeon called chowder uh, sort of took place in a fantasy realm of weird weird creatures that had very colorful crazy like pay everything was sort of paisley looking okay anyway the main character chowder was a little kid who wanted to be a cook mm. and 
There's an episode where they claimed they ran out of money, so they went to live action of the voice actors reading the script, and it was fantastic. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Oh, I love it. Oh, yeah. that's grand. That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Right. I, I will say the Teen Titans go with the, the uh, what what was it called? The one with Marv. They did two with George Perry oh, yeah. and Marv Wolfman. And and creative geniuses, I think, was the name of the episode. And they go to a comics <laughs> convention, and the, there's a, a Teen Titans panel, and they say, "Well, we mm. I guess we need to be on the panel." And they walk in, and it is the voice artists. So it's drawings of the it's, okay. it's animated. Yes, that's great. Yeah, I love I love when those guys get some credit. Exactly. You know. Well, Mackie, this has been a lot of fun. I don't care that we veered off <laughs> we at the end there did. because it was so much fun. It's always a delight talking to you. And I hope to see you one of these days, maybe next summer in San Someday. Diego. If not yes. Sooner, oh, my know. gosh. I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. I miss it so. Anyway, yeah. miss you. I know. Me too. I mean, I really do. Yes. Yeah. And uh, my wife sends her regards. Back and, at you. Um, Back at her. Yep. Soon, soon as we can. Someday. All right. All right. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to One Shot Wonders. I'll be back next week with another One Shot comic. Meanwhile, hit the subscribe button, leave me a review, tell your friends, and go buy some comics.